The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. Well, let's pray and let's go ahead and start. Glad you guys are here. This is going to be a very useful time studying today, and I'm glad we're putting on videotape for those that, uh, for some reason, uh, couldn't be with us today. Um, But uh, we'll go ahead and make the most of the time that we have. Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you so much for your grace and mercy to us. Thank you for the rain. We've had really abundant precipitation over the last number of weeks, and we're grateful again for the way that you love us and care for us. You know what we need. And Lord, today we really need the Word of God. We pray that you would please feed our souls on the ministry of the Word. I pray that you'd give uh, me strength to, to make things clear in Scripture and, and all of us the ability to understand what you would have us to understand. Uh, I pray especially for those that are in this class that we would learn how to put sin to death by the power of the Spirit and learn the solid doctrine that's under our feet as we do so. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we didn't get through uh, the whole outline and really couldn't have gotten through it last week because uh, fundamentally this class is a a class on sanctification. It's a class on on especially the negative aspect of sanctification, what we call mortification. And the key text on that is Romans 8.13. But it makes much more sense for me to say that the, the key book that there is on uh, sanctification is the book of Romans, and especially Romans 6 through 8. So we really can't do any better than to walk carefully through Romans 6 through 8 and understand what Paul teaches there on sanctification. So that's the work in front of us this week and for the next number of weeks. Um, I preached a lot of sermons on Romans 6, 7, and 8, um, and so it's going to be really a work of, of distilling a lot of that down. Uh, also, I desire that we have time uh, together to share through questions and, and kind of an open give and take. So it's mostly a, a kind of a lecture or preaching type format, but I love it when people stop and ask questions or I stop and ask you folks questions. So the handout that I gave, I, I realized as I was sitting in the uh, sanctuary after we got done that I didn't kind of finalize my point on the miracles of Jesus being a picture of um, salvation. And I wanted to talk about the man whose uh, healing was done in stages, how he saw um, uh, Jesus touched him and he saw men like trees walking around and then he touched him again and he could see everything clearly. I think that actually fits in well with the preaching that I'm going to be doing over the next number of weeks on heaven. We see, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, through a glass dimly. We don't see clearly or distinctly, but then we will see face to face. And so there is also, uh, I think, a parable at work in that healing that our salvation is progressive that we don't have our full salvation now. It's unfolding. Uh, We even had a little bit in the one I focused on last time, the healing in which Jesus sees this paralyzed man and says, uh, take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. And, but he hasn't done anything for his physical condition, which prompted them bringing uh, this paralyzed man to Jesus. And then Jesus uh, heals him so that he can walk. And so we're going to begin there today. So turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Romans 6, and you can turn in your handouts also. I'm not sure what page it is. But we're going to just walk through Romans today and and look at Romans uh, 6 and following. And I want to begin at Romans 6, 1 through 4. We want to understand, I would say Romans 6 is the key chapter 
on the basic principles of sanctification. Romans 7 would be the key chapter on the challenge that we're going to have in sanctification. Romans 8, the uh, teaching on the power of sanctification through the Holy Spirit. So in other words, there are basic positional things we need to understand about sanctification. We're going to get those from Romans 6. Romans 7, the second half of that chapter, is going to tell us just how hard it's going to be to put sin to death. It's going to be a very, very difficult thing for us. We're going to have a fight with indwelling sin the rest of our lives. Um, we need to understand that so that we're not saying, what is happening to me? I don't understand why this is so difficult. And so it's very important for us to understand Romans 7. And then Romans 8, the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit and the fact that this sanctification really is a partnership uh, between us and the Holy Spirit. So we're going to advocate that mortification of sin, which is the, the main idea of this class, is going to be done by the power of the Holy Spirit uh, in us. But before we even get to that point, we need to understand the lessons of our spiritual union with Christ, our spiritual union with Christ. So why don't we begin with Romans 6. If someone could read Romans 6, 1 through 4. All right, so they we're right in the middle of an unfolding, the most careful, e elaborate, really exhaustive unfolding of the gospel that there is in the Bible. Uh, Romans is given for that. Uh, it's given to explain the gospel to us. Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, uh, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, Romans 1.17. Uh, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. So that's like a summary of the whole book of Romans. The righteous will be justified by faith, but they'll also live by faith. And we're going to see sanctification as an unfolding of that idea that he gives us. The gospel enables us to walk or live by faith. Then he goes from that into an extended treatment on the universality, the pervasive nature of sin. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven, Romans 1.18. And he just unfolds how there is in every single human being all over the world, the pagan nations all over the world, clear evidence of the wickedness of sin, the pervasiveness of sin, and how God gave them over in the wickedness of their hearts to perversions and to sin and to idolatry, Romans 1, uh, sexual immorality, homosexuality, all kinds of things, but a, a river of sins uh, that he discusses in, at the end of Romans chapter 1, just I think something like 17 different sins that he lists out. And then he talks in Romans 2 about the moralist, could be the, the pagan moralist, the philosopher who tries to lead a virtuous life, or it could be the Jew, the law-abiding Jew. And he says, no matter what, what kind of morality you espouse, you're not living up to it. All you're doing is basically making yourself a hypocrite. The very standard you espouse to other people, you're not living it yourself. You're just condemning yourself. If that moral standard is in any way true and lining up with the moral uh, law of God, such as you shall not murder, you shall not steal, etc., you know, you end up finding that you don't keep that law. You don't obey it. And that's Romans 2. The, the universality of sin extends to moral and virtuous people. And so the summary then in Romans 3 is so uh, devastating. We are all under sin, Paul says. And that's something we need to understand what that means. We're under sin. You know, Jew and Gentile alike are all under sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, 
Not even one. No one who understands. No one who seeks God. All have turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is no one who does good. Not even one. It's just, you're pounded by it, really, in Romans 3, 9 through 18. And he just makes it so very, very plain that every single human being is a sinner. And then he gives us the glowing heart of the gospel. And that's uh, Romans 3, 21 through 26. Could somebody read that for us? That's just the foundation. We need to understand it. Romans 3, 21 through 26. All right, Topher, what does it mean to be justified by faith? That is just a solid foundation under our feet. We need to understand it. We talked about it last time. But what does that mean to you, to be justified by faith? Absolutely. And the key with justification is, is a double imputation or a crediting in the mind of God where he thinks of our sins as being on Jesus and he dies under the penalty of the law the bloody sacrifice of Jesus on the cross was was to fulfill the demands of the law that the sinner be put to death and so our sins are imputed or credited to Jesus and he dies under the righteous uh, condemnation of the law we deserve that death meanwhile the righteous moral expectations of the law of what kind of people we should be, what kind of life we should live, is credited to us on the basis of Jesus' law-abiding. Jesus was perfectly obedient to the law of God, and we are seen to be that way in Jesus. Now, this is positional language. God sees us this way. He sees us as completely forgiven for our past, present, future transgressions, all of them covered in the blood of Christ. But he also sees us positionally as if we had kept the law. And it's the kind of thing that we have the hardest, hardest time wrapping our minds around. There basically are two plans of salvation in the world. Justification by faith through Christ and justification by works. By, by moralistic obedience to some moral standard, that kind of thing. That's, those are the two. And there's a lot of different flavors of that. Buddhist type and Muslim type and virtuous atheist type. There's all that, but it's all the same thing. It's justification by works. And then there's Christianity. And we have a hard time fully comprehending that. But once we comprehend it, we're about to see in a moment how it's possible that we could misapply it to our daily lives. We're about to get there, but then in Romans 4, he unfolds more about justification by faith alone. He brings up two key examples from the past, Abraham and David. He says, what did Abraham discover in this? If Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. He was, he was seen to be a righteous man despite the fact that he was, it seems like, a moon-worshipping pagan. He was, uh, God justifies the wicked. And it uses the word in context, it seems about Abram. A wicked man, God justified him just by faith. And then David, the same thing. <clears throat> David discovered this and wrote about it in Psalm 32. Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against him, in whose spirit there's no deceit, Psalm 32. So both Abraham and David found out or discovered this righteousness that comes by faith. In other words, God has always saved sinners from the beginning of redemptive history and all the way through to the end the same way, by faith alone. Now, we have better promises now. We have a more full revelation of, of the story in Christ. But Old Testament saints, New Testament saints, saved the same way. We're justified by faith. Then in Romans 5, 1 through uh, uh, 10 or so, he brings out assurance. Because we're justified by faith, 
We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. These are all, this is all assurance language. And then Paul works with us that we also understand that even in our sufferings, even in our trouble, as we go through sorrow and suffering and misery, and we find that we actually have a stronger relationship with God as a result. That, that suffering produces proven character and proven character produces hope and hope will not disappoint. It's not a false hope because God pours out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. So even as we suffer, we're going through difficulties in this life, we actually end up in a stronger position in the end. This is all assurance language. Romans 5, 1 through 10, these are the greatest verses on assurance there are in the whole Bible. And then he reasons with when we were still God's uh, enemies, when we were still sinners, the greatest, most necessary gift was given for us, the gift of Jesus poured out on the cross when we were still sinners. How much more now that we are reconciled, now that we're adopted, how much more will we be saved from God's wrath through him? This is all assurance language. And it's so encouraging. I mean, you've you got to go over Romans 5, 1 through 10. If you're ever depressed, just go to that that section and just walk through those verses and just feed on the assurance that comes in that section. Then he gives us Adam, you know, the whole original sin teaching, which is so challenging for us. We were like, huh, what is this about? You know, Romans 5, 12 to the end of the chapter. And, and he just wants us to understand how this whole thing came about, what, what we got in Adam and uh, now what we had in Christ, and that they're, that they're similar to each other. But there's some differences too. There's a free gift given to us in Jesus and then there's death and sin given us to, an, to us in Adam. And so there's a similarity, but then there's a difference. The thing that Jesus gives is so much greater, more pervasive, more overwhelming than anything we ever got from Adam. And it's hard for us to believe because we, as it turns out, got a lot from Adam, okay? <laughs> and we're finding out just how much we got from Adam. You know, to be human is to be a sinner and to die. And we got all that from our first father. But what, what Paul is saying is, yes, that's true. It's pervasive. It's overwhelming. Look around the world. You see evidence everywhere. But what you get from Jesus is infinitely greater, far greater. So there's a similarity but a difference. And he, and he kind of culminates at the end of Romans 5 with these words. Uh, somebody read uh, verse 20 and 21. Wow, these are powerful verses. First of all, I mentioned this quite recently in uh, Romans 5, 20. Uh, it's like one of the more counterintuitive verses in the book of Romans. The law, meaning the law of Moses, was added for what purpose? What does Paul say is the reason that God gave the law in verse 20? To increase the trespass, the trespass being Adam's sin. And you're like, why would he want to do that? Why would he add the law to, to make the sin bigger? To pull it out and make it much more uh, universal and ugly and obvious. Why would he do that? Okay. So his grace ends up being uh, more obviously spectacular when you see just how much it, it covers. Anyone else on this? The law was added so the trespass might increase. Yeah, uh, we, we see how great is our sin. We don't really see it apart from the law. But I think it really is an issue of, of drawing the poison out so that we can look at it to, to pull the, the disease out so we can see the full manifestations of it. And so when you have something so beautiful, so morally perfect as the law of God, the law of Moses, Ten Commandments, the law is holy and righteous and good, he says in Romans 7. It's a beautiful thing. And yet it's an instrument of death for us. How bad must we be? 
<clears throat> so what he's saying is the law comes in and brings sin out and sin just gets multiplied. But where sin gets multiplied, grace multiplies even more. So that's getting into the how much more issue that Jesus is infinitely greater than Adam. His, his impact on you in the end will be far greater than anything Adam ever did. And you'll see that when you get to heaven. Like I'm preaching on heaven now, but it's going to be just much better to be there. And, and when you get there and you see what Jesus has done for you, you'll realize how small, however pervasive, how small it was what Adam did to you compared to now e eternity in glory, what Jesus did. That's Paul's language. So grace abounds more and more. And we really need that, don't we? We struggle with sin. We feel so guilty, and we should feel guilty because we are guilty. And we feel like sometimes overwhelmed by our sinfulness. And I just think we need to know where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. You need to know that. You need to understand that and hold on to it. So the image I've had before is of an ocean of grace, the Pacific Ocean. I always think of this. And your sin being like a fire. <clears throat> and it might be on a given day like a match or like a, a torch. It might be like a campfire or maybe even like a bonfire like they, they have at the end of a summer camp like where they're, or, or where one of these colleges wins a big, big football game or basketball game and they throw in all the picnic tables, you know, and it's like, whoa. I mean, I don't know at what point it's too big is too big, but you're talking about a major bonfire or even uh, a high rise that is completely engulfed in flames. If you take the match, the torch, the campfire, the bonfire, the skyscraper, and you put each of them in turn in the Pacific Ocean, what's going to happen? They're all going to get extinguished. And the Pacific Ocean is 35,000 feet down in Marianas Trench. It's deep. And even that's limited. Even the Pacific Ocean is limited. The God's grace is infinite. So you need to understand there is no sin you can ever commit that even remotely comes close to exhausting the grace of God in Christ. And sometimes we're like, well, you have never seen a sinner like me. It's like, how arrogant are you in your sin? You're the greatest sinner ever. And you're so great that the Lord never saw you coming and wished he had come up with a better salvation plan than Jesus on the cross. That's just so arrogant. Don't think like that. The, the provision of God for the atonement of your sins is infinitely greater than you or a million worlds. That's how great it is. So we just need to keep meditating on that. But here's the problem. We're such sinners that the more you meditate on that, your sin's going to start working on that and use it. How, how could we use this idea that I've been talking about, which is true and helpful and beneficial, wrongly? It's kind of obvious, but let's go ahead and say it. How could we take the lavishness of God's grace and the fact that you're 100% forgiven and the fact that at every moment of your day, God sees you in Christ as though you're completely obedient to the law positionally? How could you like take that beautiful thing and pervert it and make it really bad? That's where we're going. <laughs> it's all been intro, but thank you. We're, we're heading there. Sin's not a big deal. Jeff, what were you going to say, brother? Yeah, I hate to tell you, but I just feel like uh, the overwhelming majority of evangelical churches that emphasize so much on soul winning and on justification to the detriment of holiness, to the detriment of sanctification, they, it's like they haven't really read what Paul's doing here in Romans 6. And we need to take the full gospel in. We need to really take all of these work, these aspects of salvation, justification inevitably leading to sanctification, inevitably leading to glorification, and just draw them into ourselves. 
we need to understand part of the work of our salvation is to get us to feel and think about sin the way God feels and thinks about it. What do I mean by that? That we're actually in heaven, we're going to feel and think about sin the way God does. All right, so our, we're going to have our a heart totally aligned with God, okay? On the topic of sin, how do you imagine God thinks about it and feels about it? Do you have a sense of that in Scripture? How does God feel, think, and feel? Absolutely detested. I think, actually, we almost can't put words to it. I mean, when you, th- when you think about some things that God has done in reference to sin, like, let's take the flood of Noah. What does that tell you about how God feels about sin? Remember that what provoked it was that the thoughts of human hearts were only evil all the time. That was what was going on. What was his reaction to that, and what does it tell us about God? Yeah, it's putting it gently, cleanse the earth of it. But, I mean, what was going on? We could imagine, I don't think it's hard to imagine, literally millions of people. We have no idea the population of the earth, but people were living a long time, and they were very healthy um, compared to us. Uh, You know, we could imagine, easily imagine, tens of millions of people. What happened to them? Well, they drowned. Their lungs were filled with water. They choked to death. You know, they were destroyed. And you're like, well, what does that tell you about God? (laughs) He hates sin. What is hell? What does the lake of fire tell us about God? And we're like, well, do we feel about sin the way God does? I can assure you, you don't. You don't. You don't think about sin the way God does. You don't feel about God, a sin the way God does, but you will. When you're in heaven, you will. And so part of this is just this education process, and sanctification is part of that. So we are so twisted, we are so perverted, we're going to take this beautiful message of the overwhelming superiority of grace the infinite magnitude of the grace of God in Christ, so much greater than all of our sins, like the hymn says, grace greater than all of our sins. It's true. And we're going we're gonna to trade it in day after day for voluntary sin, violating our conscience, because we know that we're covered. And that's the very thing Paul's writing about. So what shall we say then? Shall we go on in sin? Shall we keep walking in sin that grace may increase? Like, I'm going to be such an example of God's grace today. <laughs> I'm going to show just how gracious God can be. And it's like, that's the very mentality. And what is Paul's answer to that mentality? What is his response? Shall we go on sinning so that grace is? May it never be, uh, God forbid, is some of the translation. It's almost like a primal scream. If I could put a primal scream in, it's like, no, absolutely not. No way. And then he says, why? Now, here's the basic idea. We're going to start on our sanctification here with this concept. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of you who are baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried with him through baptism and in death. In order that, just as God raised him from the dead, or he was raised from, to the, uh, from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So he begins the whole sanctification section with a concept of our union, spiritual union with Christ. We were united with him in death and united with him in his resurrection. And if we don't really understand that union, we will not understand sanctification. We will not see a motivation here for holiness. What does Paul mean when he says we died to sin? What do those words mean to you? We died to sin. We have no obligation to sin. Death 
has no mastery over us. Death has no authority over us. Sin has no authority over us. What he's really going to try to do here is see that there's, there's basically there's two Adams and two ways of living. There is the old Adam and a pattern of life that flows from that old Adam. And being in Adam, the original Adam, means you're going to live that kind of life and it has a certain outcome, hell. So that is a life of sin and death and the law, in the law, that, that whole thing. Uh, that's the old life. You, if you're a Christian, you died to that old life. You are out of that old life forever. You're not in Adam anymore. You're not under the law anymore. You're not, you're not in sin or in death anymore. That's an old life. That's an old citizenship. You have a new citizenship now. There's a decisive break that's been made from that, uh, between you and that old life. And he wants you to know it. Don't you know that? Don't you know that when you united with Christ by faith and by baptism, when you united with him, that that break between you and Adam and that old life was decisive. You died forever to that old life. And now you're, you've been raised up forever now into a new life in Christ. There's a union between you and Jesus. That's what he's trying to, to get across here. Now, let me say a word about baptism. I don't believe that this is primarily talking about water baptism. Okay, because it's by the baptism that this decisive break was happening. And we don't believe in what's known as baptismal regeneration. If you don't have the water on your skin, you can't go to heaven. Instead, what we have always said is the water baptism is an outward and visible sign of a baptism that's already occurred. And John the Baptist said it plainly, I baptize with water, but after me comes one more powerful than I am. And he will, now let's, let's be Baptist about this. The word means immerse, amen? Immerse, not sprinkle, all right? He will immerse you. He will plunge you into the Holy Spirit and fire. Now the word fire, I think, is referring to hell. I think it's referring to condemnation because he's going to separate the wheat from the chaff. He'll bring the wheat into his barn. He's going to burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. That's how John the Baptist finished his sermon. All right, so I'm thinking unquenchable fire is hell. So then how does Jesus plunge you into the Holy Spirit and fire? I think he's speaking to a mixed group. He's speaking in a plural. And he's saying Jesus is going to do one or the other to all of you. Either he's going to immerse you in the Holy Spirit, plunge you into the Holy Spirit, or he's going to plunge you in the end into the lake of fire, which is actually mentioned in the text I'm going to preach on today. The lake of fire is the second death. Jesus has the power to do both. That's how much greater Jesus is than I am, John the Baptist is saying. It all comes down to the baptism. And Jesus didn't do any water baptism. It says so in John 4. He himself didn't baptize, but his disciples did. The water baptism came in with the Great Commission as a symbol of something you can't see. We were all, 1 Corinthians 12, baptized by one spirit into one body. So that, I think, is talking about the moment of regeneration, the moment of being born again. At the moment that you really believed in Jesus, you're justified by faith. At that moment, you were immersed into Jesus' death and life. That's what Paul's saying. Does that make any sense? All right, that's key. Why would our union with Christ be the key to sanctification? Our understanding that. Apart from me, Jesus said, what? 
you can do nothing. And I don't think there's any topic there is in the Christian life in which that's more true than in sanctification. Putting sin to death. Apart from Jesus, you will lose. So, any, anyone else on our idea of union with Christ and how that's essential to sanctification? Amen. And let's keep in mind what sin did. Uh, I've often likened it to a fragmentation grenade in which things blew apart and went away from the true center, went away from God. And then, therefore, salvation is that U-turn, repentance, faith, and we're brought back to God so that, as it says in 1 Corinthians 15, death is the final enemy, and when all the enemies are defeated, Jesus will give the kingdom back up to the Father so that God may be all in all. So doesn't that make sense that part of our salvation is we'd be more God-centered, more Christ-centered, more immersed in Him than ever before? So if I can just give you practical application, if you want to put sin to death, uh, be more God-centered and more Christ-centered in your mind and heart. Know that you are united with Jesus in his death. And that's where he's going. Look at verses 5 through 11. Somebody read that for us, if you would. Romans 6, 5 through 11. All right, let me start at the end. Verse 11, 6, 11. This is amazing. It's it's one of those little-known trivia facts about the book of Romans. All right, Romans 6, 11 is the first command that Paul gives to the Romans in the book of Romans. It's really quite remarkable. We are quite late in the book of Romans. And he has already spun out so much doctrinal truth. Not a single you ought to, you should, you must, you need to. None, not one, until 611. All he's been doing is telling these Roman Christians what was true. What's true of them if they're Christians. He's just telling them truth, 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 truth. Just right straight through. And now we get to the first commandment, verse 11. And what is the first commandment that he gives in the book of Romans? 611. What does he command? Count yourself, consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. You should think of yourself this way. Isn't that amazing that that's the first commandment he tells the Roman Christians to do? You need to think of yourself a certain way. So we're getting into self-esteem now here. All right, we're getting into, it's all how you see yourself. Well, it actually seems to be true. It really just seems to come down to how do you see yourself? You ought to think of yourself. Now, let's go back then to verse 5. There's a dual aspect here, a negative and a positive here. Do you see it? If you've been united with Jesus in a death like his or like this in death, you will certainly also be united in a life like his or or patterned after his life. So there's a negative aspect and a positive aspect of sanctification. So away with the concept that how you live doesn't matter. That's what Paul's blowing that up. If you died with him, you also will certainly live, like, live with him. And if you're not living with him, then you didn't die with him. They absolutely go together. That's what he's saying. And we've said it many times before. If you're not seeing sanctification going on, then there's very good evidence there wasn't justification either. So if we have not been united with him in death, then the death's still on us, Right? The death penalty, the death we deserve for sin, that's on us now. We have to, that's our responsibility because we don't have a mediator. We don't have an atoning sacrifice. We don't have a savior. So we must have that union with him in his death. If his death didn't do anything for us, we're on our own on judgment day and you don't want to be there. However, if you're really counting on Jesus' death being your death and he paid the penalty, absolutely then there'll be a life that flows from it. That's what he's saying. So away with the concept that how you live doesn't matter. 
That's completely doctrinally untrue. How you live shows whether you united with him in his death. But also, let's, let's go away from proving or assurance and all that. Let's just talk about hopefulness. Since you have been united with him in his death, you've got a new life to live, and you will live it. Speak positively. If you're a Christian, you're going to walk in newness of life. And one of the greatest things that Satan can do is to deceive you into thinking otherwise. Right? And that's what verse 11 is all about. Let's cut through the satanic deceit. Tell yourself the truth. I died to sin. I'm dead to sin. Therefore, I don't ever need to sin again the rest of my life. Never. I can live a life completely free from sin. I can walk in newness of life. That's what we're getting at here. So let's, let's talk about that. Now we get to verse 6. Now verse 6 is where I got the name of this course, which I don't even remember what it is. But it's pretty cool. Can, what is the name of this course? Slaying. There's like a temptation to sin thing. What's the first one? Like something t- Slaying temptation? temptation? Slaying temptation. Starving sin, okay? Like, here's the thing, all right? The basic concept is you can kill temptations. You can't kill sin, not in this world. So lest you think I'm teaching perfectionism here, I'm not. Romans 7 will make that plain when we get to that. But I'm not teaching perfection. I'm teaching possible perfection at any given moment. So what that means is, in the moment of temptation, you can be in that moment perfect. As a matter of fact, you ought to be in that moment perfect. You ought to put that temptation to death. And that's what we're getting. But let's look at it here in verse 6. Look, it says, we know that our old self, this is the NIV here, old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Very, very important verse. It's the kind of verse that people just read over and it's like they don't really get it. It's like, yeah, it's the, it's the next verse in Romans. No, no, it's not the next verse. This is a big verse. Very, very important. But that's NIV. Somebody with a non-NIV translation, read verse 6 for us. ESV, brought to nothing, okay? All right, so now we have NIV, ESV, anyone else with a different translation? All right, so let's look at the first part, all right? It's saying that something has decisively happened. Our old man, that's literally the translation, NKGV is st- stuck with the KGV on that, old man, Anthropos. old man. And what happened, according to verse 6, what happened to our old man? Crucified. Was crucified. Now this is, you, you really need to understand this. This was a decisive, once for all action because it's speaking in the past tense. So you might think that your old man is nailed to the cross and is doing very badly. Well, that's because you didn't live in the first century in Palestine. If you asked, whatever happened to Gamal or something like that? Well, the Romans crucified him last year. For you to then ask, well, how's he doing? Be like, no, you didn't hear me. He was crucified. So what, what happened to Gamal? What happened to Joshua? If Joshua was arrested along with the other zealots and they crucified him nine months ago, what, how's he doing now? He's dead. <laughs> okay. So, you, you know, there's no question about it. Past tense was crucified. It'd be like, was murdered. You're not asking, how's he doing now? So-and-so was murdered, you know. You could say, was shot, you, you, you're not sure. Because you can be shot and survive. You can't be murdered and survive. So your old, what does this verse say is true of your old man? Dead. dead. 
if you're a Christian, your old man is dead. What does that mean? Well, this is where we get into you in Adam spiritually. The man you were in Adam is dead. That person is dead, died. And what we're going to find out is that as a result, death has no control over that person who has died. Death has no mastery. The, 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 the link, like the, the marriage link, is severed. So if you're a Christian, your old, old man, your old person, who you were in Adam is dead forever and will never come alive again. So I tend to think of this, uh, there's a lot of different analogies you could use. Uh, you could talk about like during the Cold War era, someone who escapes from behind the Iron Curtain and comes to the West and comes to, let's say, the uh, American consulate in uh, Geneva, somehow gets there and seeks asylum, political asylum, and it's granted. And then in the course of time, they become an American citizen. A decisive break has been made with the Soviet Union. They are no longer a citizen of the Soviet Union. They are now a citizen of the United States of America. Imagine then they end up in an apartment somewhere in New York City and somehow the Red Army gets their mailing address and sends a, a, a summons to all men between age X and Y to appear at Red Square by such and such a date for military service. So you got this letter and you're there in your New York uh, apartment. And even you started to learn how you need to submit to God-ordained authorities, right? You need to obey whatever governmental authorities. What does that letter have to do with you concerning authority and power? It's commanding you to show up at a certain time for military service to the Soviet Union. Zero power. Literally before God, no authority at all. Absolutely none. Or another analogy would be they're actually summoning you to return to the gulag you escaped from, the work camp, right? From behind the barbed wire. We've noticed you've gone missing. You have 90 days to reappear and re retake your place in cell block 174B. And you're there, it's like, huh, what shall I do with this summons to return to the gulag? You know something? That's what temptation is. That right there is what temptation is all about. It's summoning you to go back to the torture chamber and the, the whipping post and the cell of sin. And you're like, well, if that's what it is, why do we ever do it? Good question. <laughs> why do you ever obey the summons to an old way of life? I'll tell you why. There's one, there's one reason. It's called insanity. A person like that, imagine if you're, you're like coming in there and you find your, your new former Russian friend or whatever, and he's sitting there and he's just crying and he's upset and he's holding this letter. He's like, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. They're, they're calling me to go back to the gulag. I was like, don't go. <laughs> That's the advice I would give you. There's nothing. I mean, rip it up, burn it or frame it, put it up on the wall and say, this is what I used to be. I am now a free man. So the more you understand that, that's the very thing verse 11 is telling you to do. Do you see that? Read, somebody read verse 11 again. Do you see how the first half is like this? You're supposed to think of yourself as no longer a citizen of the Soviet Union. I'm no longer a citizen of that wicked government. I'm free. So it does not matter how many scary summons, how many threats, how many anythings come from that government. I will not obey any of them. I'm free. Another analogy others have used, Martin Lloyd-Jones used, of slavery. 
like in the American South. Once, once the uh, 13th Amendment, I think, was ratified and then the war was won and all that, there was no chattel slavery anywhere in the United States. And so you could imagine how somebody who had when born in slavery, lived their whole life in slavery, and then heard the voice of the taskmaster, the Simon Legree character, would, would tremble and start to obey just out of habit. But there's no legal force. He doesn't need to obey any of those commands ever again. He's a free man. That's what freedom's all about. So what he's saying in 611 is you should count or consider or reckon yourself to be dead to sin that you should have as much responsiveness to temptation as a corpse does to stimuli. That's, you should think of yourself that way. And then the second half, the positive, that's mortification, that's the negative half. Positively, consider yourself alive to God in Christ Jesus. That's all the positive things. I can be spirit-filled today. I can be characterized by the fruit of the Spirit with my wife today. I don't need to be a wicked person. I don't need to be a bad husband. I don't need to be an angry man. I don't need to be lazy or lustful or selfish. I can be free today, this very day, right now. You could be in the middle of a conflict with your wife. He's like, wait a minute. I'm not considering myself dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. I don't need to sin anymore. And you think, no, 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 you don't understand. There's a certain momentum to sin. We need to keep kind of coasting to a stop like a truck with its brakes out. No, you don't. Stop sinning. Stop saying mean things. Start leading, praying. It's like, what, what are we doing? Stop. This is bad. I love you. I love our kids. I love our lives. Let's pray together. What an instant stop. Because any new violation of, of your conscience is more sin, and you don't need to sin ever. It's a very powerful idea. Try it out. Next conflict you get in with your wife, try it out. Just like, wait a minute. Or better, don't get in a sinful conflict with her. Just let's do that. So now let's understand. Verse 6. For we know that our old self was crucified with him. First of all, he begins in verse 6 with what concept here? What are the very first words he says in verse 6? We know that. That's the purpose of BFL classes. That's the purpose of Lloyd-Jones having his sermons printed so we can read it. That's the purpose of, forget the BFL class and Lloyd-Jones sermons, that's the purpose of reading the Bible. You do know this, don't you? So it's a battle for the mind. You can't reckon or consider yourself dead to sin if you didn't know it. Now you know. You're free. You're set free. You don't ever need to sin again. I'm telling you that. You're free from this. Go ahead. I, what I'm going to say is I would advocate that we cannot be imbalanced. All right? Thomas Chalmers wrote a book, The Expulsive Power of a Great Affection. I, I understand he's arguing against something, but I just think we need both negative and positive persuasions. I think you need to hate sin and love righteousness. It, they just go together. Like Hebrews 1 speaks to that of Jesus Christ, right? You have love righteousness and hated wickedness. I mean, they just go hand in hand. And so here, you see how much they're woven together. There's a hatred of the old life and a putting off. And then there's a delight and a beauty of the new life. I really think they go together. And the one helps the other and the other helps the one. They're really partners here. So mortification helps vivification. The, the putting to death helps the, the, the life. And, and you can see that with the parable of the uh, seed and the soils. Remember the, the seed sown among the thorns, which grew up and choked the plant? Remember that? What's the problem there? It's being choked out. There's, there's negative stuff that's growing up, and, and it's robbing the soil of nutrients that should go into the plant. It's not fruitful. Or it's blocking the sunlight, and so it's just not growing. So there has to be a weeding out for there to be a flourishing and a growing. They really go together. So we're going to hate and love. If all you're doing is hating, 
you're right. That's a, that's a twisted, negative kind of life. You could see a life of asceticism, a life of extreme self-denial. There's no joy. There's no happiness. There's no beauty in that life because they're just so distrustful of the five senses that they want. I mean, there are people that have lived like this, and it's not Christianity, so I agree. All right, so let's, get, let's finish verse 6. Um, oh, my goodness. It's 8 past. <laughs> see, I was worried the whole time about the hour today. Now I'm worried about the minutes, okay? We, we're at 8 past. This is incredible. It's all right. It's all right. This is thorough work here. You've got to understand Romans 6. Without it, you're not going to understand. If I just jump to Romans 8, 13, you should put to death, put sin to death by the power of the Spirit, which is how mortification is taught in John Owen. Uh, you're going to miss the foundation of all of that. You need to understand who you are in Jesus, all right? So let's say, if you're a Christian, your old man is dead forever. Another illustration people have used is the witness protection program. That's kind of cool. Uh, cool. Like you, you, you testify against the uh, mafia in open court, okay? And then return to your day job. All right? <laughs> What's the problem there? It won't be not long. <laughs> you know, later that, that week, something happened. <laughs> So they offer you uh, a new life, all right? It's like, it's such a bad thing. It's like, well, you know, you t turn your back on your education, turn your back on your family, turn your back on your social security number. It's like, whatever. So it's not a great illustration because it's not a great life. But at any rate, you see that old person you were, that old identity is shut down. They've killed it. It's gone. So there's a lot of different analogies here. You have to think of yourself that way, negatively, but that's not all. The old self was crucified with him. So that, or with the result that, what's the next part in verse 6? NIV loves to help us out a little bit. Um, <laughs> it puts extra intensifiers. I love the NIV. That's what I've, I've memorized. Um, so body ruled by sin. Right, another translation. Body of sin might be brought to nothing. Okay, body of sin is probably more of a simple translation. Body of sin. How about the NKGV? Go ahead. Okay, so it's body of sin. So now we need to understand this. Okay, old man, body of sin. Are they the same thing? No, they're not. Okay, old man is positional you in Adam. Body of sin is what you woke up in today. It's how you walked from the car here. It's what you're sitting in today. And when the class is over, you'll stand up in your body of sin and you'll go uh, to uh, worship. It's your physical body, including your mind. It's the, the present physical, mental vessel of your soul, okay? And it's got lots of names here. He talks about the body a lot, okay? Uh, another uh, title for it is mortal body, okay? So what's the mortal body? It can die physically. So it's the dying body. It's called here the body of sin, right? So this is how I would define it. It is your physical body and brain as it has been immersed and trained to sin. It's a set of, of physiological, like neural paths and muscles and uh, intestines with their various uh, natural drives, normal drives, that have been abused by sin over the many years and trained to go beyond boundaries that God has set up so that to sleep becomes to be a sluggard, to drink becomes to be a drunkard, to have normal sexual relations with your wife becomes sexual immorality of many types. Um, that's what the flesh does, generally called the flesh, pushes normal body drives 
toward gluttony, drunkenness, sluggardness, and sexual immorality. The body has been trained. You've been training your body. You're like black belts in sin. All right? You're expert sinners. So what do I mean by that? You're, you're expert sinners. You're experts at twisting a story to make yourself look good and somebody else look bad. You're really good at that. So am I. It's sad, but it's like slander, gossip, a little bit of white lie, and, and you're concocting a story to tell what happened. Is that bad? Yeah, that's really bad that we do that. Or, or just to have a, a kind of a, a haughty, kind of prideful reaction if somebody doesn't notice something that you did and that you're not thanked for it or praised for it, and, and you're a little offended at them. You've been doing that kind of thing for years. So have I. Um, same thing with looking lustfully at a woman. Uh, been just black belt experts at that. Been training yourself. It's a trainable thing. And the moment that you're justified, that, does, that training doesn't go away. It's still there. So, so you've got this body of sin that is pulling you toward violation of God's moral law. It's pulling you all the time. Paul says, I beat my body and make it my slave, lest after I preach to others, I myself may be disqualified. I've got to keep this body under because it's, it's kind of like, um, there's a lot of different analogies, but I remember uh, one in particular had to do with my car. I had this old... Uh, um, Ford. It was a, a police car. I don't think it was ever that particular one was ever owned by any police department, but that model was made for police departments all over the country. So it was like a four-door black sedan. All right. People always thought of me as an unmarked police car. They, they drove very slowly in front of me or behind me or whatever. And so, you know, but I love that car. I bought it for $500. And you could work on it. You could almost get into the straight six 240. You could get in with the engine and work on it. It was just, you know, it was beautiful. To, I changed the brakes and I did all kinds of cool stuff. All right. Uh, well, it was having tr uh, trouble with the, uh, the, the power steering was having a leak. And I just didn't have a lot of money. They said, well, you can just go without power steering. But before that happened, that was one of the hardest things. It was very tough on the chest, especially at low speeds. But for one day, I had intermittent power steering. Do you know what that is? Intermittent power steering? It can kill you. <laughs> okay, you're going around a bend and suddenly the car bucks left or goes off, shoots off right. You know, it kicks back in as you're, you know, it's like, whoa. You don't do that for long before you actually pull over and say, I need to be towed somewhere. You wouldn't want to drive it. And it's like, you don't have any idea what direction you're going to go. It's just a, a pull in a certain direction. That's what you're trying to drive to heaven. You're trying to drive in that on the straight and narrow road that leads to eternal life. It's, you're just being pulled every which way off of the path. Martin Luther used the image of a drunk peasant riding on a, a, a mule or a horse home from the tavern. And he slips off the right side of the beast into the mud and he resolves he's not going to do that anymore. So what do you think happens within minutes after remounting the beast? He's going to fall off on the other side. And in that way, he gets home somehow. Probably the beast drags him, you know, when his boot gets stuck in the stirrup or something like that. That's the picture of us dealing with sin. And it's like, I'm going to really be good today. I'm going to try to be right. And it's like, you've got this body of sin. Now, what does he say? The one is connected to the other. You're, you don't need to ever sin again. And so the body of sin was killed with the effect that what would happen to the body of sin, the, the old man, sorry, the old man was put to death, with the effect that what would happen to your body of sin? 
Well, that's the final. We're not going to be a slave. It's going to be what? Brought to nothing. Katargeo is the Greek. Rendered increasingly powerless. We could say weakened or starved to death. You can imagine you're in hand-to-hand battle in World War II, like there was a movie, Saving Private Ryan, which two guys are literally in hand-to-hand. One of them, if not both of them, are going to be dead. I mean, there's no way they're going to say, hey, we've had a good struggle here. I admire you. Let's be done. All right? That's not happening between the German and the American soldier. One or both of them is going to end up dead. And that's like you and sin. We'll talk more about those kind of uh, analogies. But you can imagine in this very violent image, you've got your your hands around the man's throat and he's fighting and struggling and trying to get to his weapon, whatever, but those efforts are getting weaker. You see, the more you're around his throat, getting weaker and weaker and weaker until at last he's dead. That's the image here. It's like little by little weakened or starved to death. Another would be like a walled city and nothing going in or out. And there's a siege going on, and little by little by little, starvation takes over in that city, and the soldiers on the wall just can't fight as vigorously. They can't fight as strongly. And so the city's really being starved to death. Does that make sense? And so the idea here, then, is one of a gradual process of weakening. That's what can happen to sin. All right? With the result that you're not enslaved to it. You're set free from it. So the weaker that the, old, the, that the sin nature gets, the sin habits get, then the more bearable it is, the less compelling are the commands that come towards servitude. Does that make sense? So 6.6 six is a very important verse. You can slay the temptation. You can starve the sin habit. Okay? So what does that mean? And we're going to finish with that. Slay the temptation to the end that you starve the sin habit. It's a given occasion. Uh, a temptation comes at a certain space and time. There's an opportunity to sin. Well, let me give you a picture, okay? Joseph and Potiphar's wife. There was a tr- certain afternoon in which apparently everyone in the house was gone, orchestrated by Potiphar's wife, and she grabs hold of him, remember? And says, lie with me. That's called a temptation. How did he slay that temptation? Ran, Ran. <laughs> okay? Lead us not into temptation. Get out of it. Is that temptation, that occasion, dead? Once he ran, leaving the garment in her hand, ran. Yeah, it is. Now, there are ramifications. I'm not getting into that, but I'm just saying he didn't give in. And that moment has passed. It's an opportunity. It's a specific moment. The more you do that, the more that that particular sin habit will get weakened in your life. Does that make sense? So let's talk about, let's say, oh my goodness, I can't, we can't talk about any. We'll, we'll pick this up next time. This is, we're 19 past. I would love to keep going, but I can't. Richard, would you close in prayer, brother? Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.